afternoon, everyone, and thank you very, very, very much for choosing to spend your afternoon here with us. For those who don't know, I'm Patricia Rogan Fable, and I do a podcast show to help people maximise property values. And the show is called Maximising Property Values. It's on all the popular pop popular podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, Audible, all of them. That, however, is normally just a monologue, which is me just talking and sharing. But I've now added a guest series, which I started on the 17th of November. And my guest today is Spencer Grant. We are going to do, I call this a deep dive, and I always laugh at myself. So how can you do, how can you deep dive into a human being? But whatever it is, however we can do it, we're going to try and do it today. So who is Spencer? Spencer, welcome to Maximising Property Values. But before we go into your property and offer activities, I like for every single guest, and I don't warn them in advance, because I like them to just kind of like, just listen to the question and answer it. So we get to know them a little bit better, a little bit more than what they post on social media. So Spencer, your questions, you've got two today are these. Please tell us the most trouble that you've ever been in and how you got out of it. So that's one question. And then the second one is um, the thing in your life that you are most proud of and you're not allowed to answer them in respect to property. So it has to be anything other than property. So over to you. Ooh. Everyone does that. When you say property, do you mean business in general? I mean kind of like property investment. Property, strictly property, so it can be business. So it can be business, but... Um... I'll go business and personal. Okay. So, the most trouble I've ever been in. Okay, I've never been arrested, never, uh, you know, sort of... Only time I've ever been to court was actually sort of going to... I studied law at A-level, so that would have been part of the uh, modules uh, A-level was sort of to sit in a court. So that's the only sort of actual experience I had. And I really, really enjoyed that, but not sort of ever had anything like that. No run-ins with the law. Um, uh, in terms of trouble I've been in, I'm trying to think of something like in the past... See, I, I, I was really naive when I started working. I didn't go to university. I jumped straight into the um, Liverpool street and was just working for, I didn't realise at the time, it was a wine brokerage. And I thought, I, I remember seeing some of my friends and they're like, oh my God, like you're working in a wine brokerage. And I was like, I know, right? I'm selling these incredible wines working with clients around the world, I didn't realise, I did not realise at all, it was a boiler room, I didn't realise at all, it was very sort of, uh, you know, I'm in one side of the office, and doing sort of this work, and actually I had absolutely no idea, uh, I was very naive at the time, and yeah, the real, the real story, the real story behind that is, after 
um, working in that job only for a few months, actually um, it closed down. And the this is a true story. The directors I later searched them on Google ended up um, going to court and they'd stolen over a million pounds. And and it's a horrible, horrible story. And it's just so much suffering and pain for for a lot of people. I had absolutely no clue at all. Um, I didn't get in trouble for any of that. But after that job, I then went and worked in recruitment. And I worked for a firm that didn't get didn't end up paying me, which was really sort of very, it didn't last very long. And I remember they didn't pay me and I was just so upset. I'd worked so hard to try and generate business. I'd worked really hard. They sort of sold me this, you know, thing that, you know, it just, I was just young. I was sort of 18 or so and and just hadn't really, um, I'd just been sold the dream and didn't get paid didn't get paid and then i met i I remember i remember being told um you're not being paid you know you can choose to come to work or you can you know you sort of you can you know you sort of be made redundant or something it was never official i just again i was just very upset i remember sitting at home and i remember being told this is actually quite ridiculous i remember being told everyone's email password is the same and I was like, I remember sitting at home thinking, it's got to be a way I can try and get paid for, for the month's work I've done. They, they, they literally would have hired me with knowing, they literally would have hired me knowing they're not going to pay me, uh, this firm. And so I remember emailing the director and I just said something like, my, um, I just said something like, my uncle's a bailiff and, you know, I'm going to instruct him and, you know, you're going to have to paint. I, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was so young and so, so naive. And then I remember logging in, seeing him sort of, I remember logging in and seeing, um, seeing the emails come into the director's email. I mean, it's just so ridiculous, this setup where you can log into anyone's email. <laughs> and, and I've ended up, um, long story short, I've ended up basically emailing a sort of someone else to say, yes, pay him. <laughs> I've ended up getting a call to say, we're going to pay you. And I just couldn't believe it. The fun, the part where I got in trouble <laughs> was when they found out <laughs> that it was me. <laughs> and that was the, um, that's the story of the most trouble. I got the phone call to say, you've, you've we've checked the ip address and stuff like that we know where you just emailed from which was my home we know where that is and we want the money back (laughs) and i just couldn't believe did you pay them back i didn't pay them back and and this is just how this is i I told them i'm not i I can't pay you back this is my this is this is the money you promised me and they said they're coming to get the money back and that was the moment where I felt like, oh, my God, I must be in some trouble here. Um, it's a really silly thing, this firm. I mean, it's so unprofessional. But basically, they've ended up phoning me up and pretending to be a pli- This is how ridiculous this is. <laughs> I'm so sorry for laughing because it's just something you would never hear of now. Um, they phoned me up pretending to be a police officer 
saying that you've done some fraud and you're going to be arrested. And I, and I said, this isn't the police. You know, I know who this voice is. <laughs> and I'd recorded the phone call. And actually, it's a criminal offence to impersonate a police officer. And I'm just sort of sitting there thinking, this is just ridiculous, all of this, because they didn't even pay me. <laughs> and I've ended up basically going back to them, emailing them and saying, I've got the recording. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the police. It's a crime to be, you know, impersonate a police officer. And then they and it went away and they said, you know, basically, sorry. And that was it. It was just a very quick. We're moving on. And so it was a horrible period. But um, that moment when I got told that they know where I was, that felt like the most trouble I'd ever been in. If you know what I mean, it just felt like I've really done something bad here and you know but i hope that's what the story sort of wow spencer do you know of all the people who've been on the guest series so far that is the most interesting <laughs> delve into your life that i've heard okay you were young so do you know you you did what you had to do and and you know for them to be trying to employ you and deceiving you telling you you were going to get paid and then not paying you really really not good but you know like you said you were young you were naive you sent the email in you know somebody else's name and you know stuff like that sometimes happens but i'm just so good that you got paid what you were promised because it's not really good for employers to do that and and if you'd known you could have actually done something about them and the courts, the tribunals, the employment tribunal would have ordered them to pay you that money. Um, so, you know, for people in the room, we're not saying take, you know, matters into your own hands, but, you know, justice was done at the end of the day. Oh, Spencer, you and think- I, and, I didn't, like... and I didn't want any more than what I, I, I felt I deserved, which was just what I'd worked uh, during the period for. And I'd spoken to people in a different office so this firm, this sort of recruitment firm um, as such, was in London and in Dubai. And the plan was that you come and work in London and within a few months you move to Dubai. And I remember speaking to people in Dubai who said um, they're really having trouble paying the people in Dubai. And people are out there with their, you know, the whole, they've moved out to Dubai. You know, it's sort of like people have got their bills to pay and all sorts of things. And... I just couldn't believe sort of there was people in a worse position than me of, you know, in that sense. But I never tried to get more than I deserved. I really was, I was very upset. You know, I just, I, I, I give, I give my all to everyone and everything when I do stuff like this and work for people. And so I really felt really just let down and, you know, I was very upset. And, do you know, Apart from that, I think they, they were probably trading insolvent, which again is against the law, but you know, that's all in the past. Now the boiler room. I'm so sorry. Do you know, we're going to come back to this, please. Sure Spencer, thing. Please. But before we actually do that, um, let me um, just ask you like a couple of property questions and then we'll go into your business activities because they are really interesting. But First of all, can you tell us about your property journey to date? So this is like property investment or or you know anything where you make money from property. And then tell us about how you started in business at the age of 16. So you see, when when I have guests um 
as part of this series, the guest is the star. And I don't like to interrupt them. That's why I'm kind of like telling you, you know, two things that you can maybe talk about. I will interject every now and again if I think, you know, you can, um, you know, add a bit more um, um, flesh to what you've said, just kind of like, you know, fleshing things out. But otherwise, I'd like you to just take the stage and just talk about what you do. Now, oh, also, Spencer, you only left me with one link, which was your LinkedIn. But if you've got any links that, you'd like to share with the room, if you just post it above, you know, feel free to do that. That would be great. I've got the podcast one up there so that people people know where to get this from. Oh, and by the way, people, this podcast will publish next week, um, but it will be on Clubhouse in the meantime. So yeah. So Spencer, yeah. Tell us about your property journey to date and then tell us about how you started a business at the age of 16 and what your business looks like today. And if you want to share your link, please, honestly, feel free to do so. Because your LinkedIn one doesn't work. I couldn't get it to work. Um, OK, I'll, I'll quickly sort of check that in a second and and um, send you the updated link. I don't know why that hasn't worked. So I think... Um, just, I don't know how how in depth you'd like me to go in terms of the property journey. Well, do you know anything that you've learned that you know people can benefit from would be amazing to hear. I, um, you know things that you've implemented that you know help you in your property business again would be amazing to hear. So that sort of, of thing, really. I think what really helps with, and if, it, if it's okay with you, I think the property journey has a lot of uh, a lot of the past has really helped with what when the property journey started. So I don't know if it's it, it's helpful, but maybe I could sort of go from the start actually first. Okay, yeah, yeah. Do. Sure. So, so I lived in Essex in uh, Woodford Green, South Woodford. Actually, we lived in an area that's literally in the middle of sort of between South Woodford, Woodford Green, Clayhall, Gants Hill, right in this sort of centre. So. It's my postcode um, comes up Woodford Green, but it's sort of south of Woodford. And we had a we had car boot sales near us, really near us. And the Essex car boot sales are all sorts of people selling Ralph Lauren and all sorts of designer gear and th things like that. And, and they're selling it. And when I was really young, I used to I used to go to the boot sales and I used to sometimes sell. And then once I was selling, I used to sort of see people buying. And once I started looking at that, I realised that actually, me standing behind the stall, I'm I'm not seeing I'm not sort of out there looking at you know what people are selling. And there are very very interesting things at some of these places. People sell stamps and coins and all sorts of. There's so many different sort of things that people are selling. And fundamentally, there are a lot of people here that don't necessarily know what something might be worth. I'm standing behind the stall selling something. So I decided to sort of start. I decided to not sell something at a boot sale and go on the other side and start looking at buying. And I'd get up really early in the morning and I was, you know, 16 years old, for example. And I would take some money with me. I would go at 5 a.m. to the boot sales. And I really liked, buy, I really liked my, my strategy when I went to the boot sale was I'd go with lots of money, I, I you know, that I built up. I would be the person that goes up to the person who's just literally turned up to the boot sale I'd look through their things and I would say to them, I'll buy everything. And they, and they look at me flabbergasted and go, 
you know, they've never had that before. People who go to a car boot sale don't expect a 16 year old guy to sort of come up and say he'll buy everything off you if it's something he really, you know, if they had the stuff I really wanted. And it used to throw people off. And actually, people used to give things away really, really cheaply. I used to like selling designer clothes. I had a shop on eBay. And what I basically used to do is really target men's designer clothing children's designer clothing sometimes women's but I was never sort of that good at it and I remember going and buying so I used to take say 500 pounds with me and sometimes you could buy things for you know a Ralph Lauren shirt for two or three pounds they'll sell for 25 pounds on eBay so once I started buying things I, I took my mum's loft space I used to bring it home put it in the loft now I've got loads of things got to sell these things and I would basically look at getting the things ironed, photoed, listed, do a short auction on it, one to three days or, uh, sorry, three days or five day auction and sell the items. That money I would use to sell would then be the money I've got the following week after I paid the fees. And after a while, I just sort of was thinking, there's got to be a better way of doing this. And I found a dry cleaners nearby. And bear in mind, I'm not even driving at this point. Uh, so my mum would sort of take me there and dry cleaners nearby. He would dry clean every item for a pound, we agreed. Then I put an, an advert out in a local sweet shop. I found someone who wants to do the, uh, the listing of the, uh, the photos. So my process became buying the things on a Saturday morning, going to the dry cleaners on a Saturday, dropping the items in, collecting them the following week on, say, a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Those items get dropped off to the person who does the listing of the photos that then changed once that person was driving they would actually then come to me so basically all i'm doing is buying the items i've then got a process to get them ironed a process to get someone else photoing it listing it selling it money comes back into the paypal account fees get paid and then you know i've got my margin and i remember um it just worked really really well and i just i just realized that actually sometimes with some of these little businesses it's not that difficult once you break down each step and put the right person in place doing it so i built up a little ebay business actually i was probably earning quite good money at the time uh, for my age uh, at the time and it was a saturday morning at 5 a.m i'd sort of go and you know for an hour or two so really early on i'd really got a taste for sort of you know handling money doing things, you know, eBay and business and sort of buying, selling and things like that and ha had a little enterprise. People go to the boot sales and they sell and they might make 20 or 30 pounds in a whole day. And there's me going there. And I know that if I spend all my money, I've probably made a good, good amount of money. So it just made so much more sense being a buyer than a seller. And I really, really enjoyed it. And actually, I ended up having two people that used to do the listings for me in the end and and that was just a really fun little enterprise in terms of where things went after that i then started work um after my a levels i went i studied economics business law psychology and went into work worked in a few different jobs which i just sort of alluded to before i then got headhunted into a, a recruitment firm and they told me that they're going to send me out to Southeast Asia. I mean, by this point, I'm quite cynical of all of these things. But they said to me, 
I, I was quite good at recruitment in my previous role and I had some really good, you know, billings, they call it. And I got headhunted into this firm and basically the job was to build up the desk in recruitment. And at this point, this was what year would this have been? This would have been 2013. So I would have been 20 years old and build up the desk. Once you've built up the desk and you've got clients, you've got contractors, you've got, you know, billings, you can go out to Southeast Asia and set up the office in KL, Kuala Lumpur, uh, you know, Thailand, somewhere like that. And I really like that challenge and I really like the company. And so the way I went about doing this, um, and sorry, the reason they said KL and Malaysia or Thailand is because my market for recruitment was Southeast Asia. And I was doing deep water drilling, engineers, um, Wales team leaders, things like that in drilling and engineering. All my clients were in Southeast Asia. And when I started this desk, I had nothing. It was just a, a telephone and a computer. And it was, you know, off you go, build the desk. It's a cold start. And I really like that challenge. But the one thing that, you know, I didn't just sort of work for any firm and sit there with a desk. The one reason I really wanted to do this specific um, job for this firm was because during the process of being interviewed after being headhunted, I sort of said to them, this is how I want to do it. And the way I wanted to do it was there was a firm in India called Key Resourcing. And Key Resourcing are basically a group of huge virtual assistants at the time, and they'll do anything for you. And what I said to them when I was when I was sort of interviewed was my plan to build the desk, I could do it on my own if I really wanted to, would be the following thing. It will be, we're gonna map out every single oil and gas company in Southeast Asia. First of all, I want to know who everyone is in Southeast Asia, what their operations are, and I want key resourcing to go out there and basically fill me out, map everything out for me. Who sits next to each other? So what they'll do, key resourcing, is they'll phone up, uh, say for example, it's 0208. I mean, this is not, you know, this is in Thailand, it's probably something like 0063 or something, but they'll phone up and they'll change the number at the end. So instead of the last number being 8495, they'll just spend all day 8496, 8497, and people will be picking up the phone. And they'll say, who's that? Oh, okay, you sit next to him. And they're building out this database for me of thousands of people sitting within these different companies in Southeast Asia, whether it's Chevron or Shell or ExxonMobil. And so the reason why I said I want to map this out is because having that kind of data is really powerful because instead of phoning up a recruitment, uh, an oil and gas firm and saying to them, I, you know, I, I'm looking to offer you some candidates and things like that. I'm more sort of having conversations with quite high up people. And the reason we're going quite high up is because we're getting their numbers. Once we get their numbers, I'm phoning them and saying to them, I know where everyone sits in your team. And I know where everyone sits in ExxonMobil's team. And I know you guys love the people from Shell Malaysia or something for your deep water operations. I know everyone who sits in those teams and I've spoken to them on the phone. And, you know, it's a very different conversation. And that's what I said to them. I had the foresight to say, that's where we need to get to. That's what's going to separate us from any other recruitment firm is having that data. So we built, we built out the data. Once we had the data, a huge, huge spreadsheet. Um, I got to work, started making phone calls. I won some business. Then I had some fantastic candidates that I'd managed to convince to sort of start moving them around. And that's all I was really doing. I was just sort of taking someone from there, moving them to there, and just moving people around. It wasn't actually that difficult. It's just really hard if you don't know 
where to start and how to do it and things like that. So once I had the data, it's just getting to work, making the phone calls. I built out the desk. I ended up having three or four people on the desk with me. We had clients all around Southeast Asia and it became a very uh, successful desk within one year. And then I got told Southeast Asia opening the office is not going to happen. Um, actually wasn't necessarily part of the plan. And I was a little bit disappointed when I heard that because, you know, again, I've just been sort of semi-sold this web of, you know, small lies and things to get me excited. And I just, at this point, if you can imagine, I've been working many of these jobs and I sort of worked really hard. I've given it my all, you know, absolute all because Southeast Asia, I'm up at three and four in the morning. I'm the first one in the office. I'm speaking to clients in Queensland and, you know, um, all around Southeast Asia and Australia. And I'd given it everything and I'd really, really worked hard and I get told I'm not going to Southeast Asia. So I decided to leave and I was quite bullish. And I went and traveled around Southeast Asia for a few weeks uh, on my own and really enjoyed sort of just, you know, that liberation of I've left. Off I go to actually finally do this whole thing that I sort of got promised to do went to Southeast Asia, had an amazing time uh, dotting around Thailand, going to different islands, things like that. So many fantastic stories from that period of time. Um, and that was 2014. I come back from 2014 uh, in the summer. Elliot, my brother at the time, had a concierge business. He was managing clients all around who were, you know, very high net worth individuals and if they want something, you know, it's they get it sort of straight away. It's a very there's more stories about that whenever you like. Um, so clients like McKinsey, large consulting firms, anything you need, you know, we'll get it for you. And, you know, we need 25 bottles of champagne within the next hour. And so loads of amazing stories of things like that and crazy stories. And I then said to Elliot, I'm really good at you know, generating leads, trying to find some new business, mapping out companies. Why don't I help you with that? Why don't I help you with trying to just win some new clients on your concierge business? And, and that's where basically I started my own business and my and one of my one of my first, you know, proper businesses, which was a social media business. And that started um, just after summer in 2014. And that's where I started going to networking. I started learning about how to build rapport with people through networking really quickly and how to actually win new business face to face. It's very different to picking up the phone, you know, in Southeast Asia. And I used to read really interesting books. Sometimes even I used to read. I know this sounds really silly and this is the sort of thing I don't tell anyone really. But back then I was reading books. Thanks. Yeah, it's fine. And it's fine. I was reading books like Mystery Method, uh, The Game, things like some of the pickup artists. And it's and it's not so much about going out there. And I wasn't trying to sort of serenade loads of women. It, it's actually really interesting how some of these books on by these pickup artists, these, you know, professional sort of daters who these group of guys who couldn't even get a girlfriend decide to actually crack the code on how to actually go and get you know, the model sort of girlfriend. And a lot of those principles actually really help when it's trying to sort of grow um, a business by meeting people face to face. There's a lot of cold reading involved and there's a lot of 
how to very quickly build rapport with people in different ways. And, you know, they would do that sort of with women, whereas I was sort of I was translating that into sort of meeting people through business, uh, through networking events and building a really big network. And one of the things that they used to do with um, one of the things these pickup artists used to do that I used to do is they used to always say, take someone from one location and you move them to a new location. So it's sort of like, you know, you might meet someone in a bar, show them a new bar, show them a new place. And it really gets people very engaged and excited. And I used to go to networking at so many different places uh, when I'm trying to build this social media business. And I remember one of them, which I still go to, is called the Yacht Club. And the Yacht Club is a yacht and it's docked on embankment in the um, on the River Thames. And you get to go there once a month and it's this incredible sort of networking thing. It's really just a big piss up, but it's a really good time. You meet loads of business people and you're all having a really good time and you pay £150 a year and you get £150 in the bar tab. So I basically paid the, you know, the money. I joined the yacht club. I would then say to people at events, let's, you know, it's sort of what other events do you go to? And they would say, oh, you know, I don't really go to other events as such or not many. I said, you're going to have to come with me to this event. And eventually I would bring so many people to the Yacht Club and they'd have on their badge invited by Spencer that actually so many people at this place I've invited. So now they're here at my event. It's sort of, you know, I'm the one sort of showing them these different events. They're meeting loads of people. And the first thing is most people say, is, oh, who invited you? And so really quickly, I'm building up a really good network of people. And by doing that and inviting people to this event, the other thing you're doing is you're going to get some reciprocation because you're going to get someone who turns around to you and emails you and says, thank you so much for inviting me to that amazing event. Um, oh, you know, I can't wait to sort of go to the next one or I can't, I'm going to invite you to this event. Or it might be something like, I'd love to introduce you to this person. And then you'll get an email come through saying you know introduction spencer this fantastic guy who you know i mean I'm, I'm, that's what it might have said you know who runs this social media company which uh, they don't realize is actually sort of just started and i'd love you to meet this person and this person and slowly my network expanded and i remember waking up one day and i had five emails and all five emails were referral, referral, introduction, introduction, introduction. I'd never even really pitched my own business. People knew what I did, but really just by helping out people, networking, bringing people to different events, just like that, building rapport, people started to refer me business. And that's how that business ended up growing. And I ended up winning, uh, let's just say, for example, 12 clients. And my goal was to tweet from my bedroom, sit there, do some social media, generate leads for businesses. And I would sit in my bedroom, sit back, and actually each client is paying me £300, for example. So it was very comfortable. It was a nice little business to come back to after a nice summer. And it took, a, it took time to build it, don't get me wrong, but it was a lovely business at the time. The problem with this business was it's really hard to scale because... I got to a point where I had, say, 12 clients and I'm doing four hours a week or three hours a week or something for the client. So I'm still working pretty long hours for the, for the clients and doing it myself. I hadn't yet worked out how to actually systemize it. I then realized I need to hire someone to do the social media stuff for me. Maybe I need to get an office. Maybe I need to do this or that. 
And actually, I found it quite hard to get to that next level where we get from 12 to 50 and social media people might be, you know, someone £30,000 a year. So all of a sudden, I've got to win loads more clients. And that just didn't really suit my lifestyle at the time. And the reason it didn't suit my lifestyle is because at this point in 2015, for example, uh, I would have been 22 and a lot of my friends were still at university. And it really suited me to be able to go to universities. I didn't get to go to university, so I, it really suited me to get to go and see them and and spend time with them. And, and, and I used to go to Exeter, Nottingham, um, Sheffield, Birmingham, Oxford, Brighton, all these different places to see all my different friends at their universities. And I really got to get that university feel that I'd been sort of craving a bit. So the business really worked well for what my lifestyle needed at that time. I really just needed to sort of be a bit more free and with friends and, you know, get that university feel. It really helped. <clears throat> when I was down in Exeter, I was on Tinder at the time, which was the platform of, of the day back then. If you wanted to, um, you know, sort of match up with someone, you know, you, you know, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I ended up matching with Alice and Alice lives not too far from Exeter, say 30 minute drive. And I don't quite know how exactly at the time we matched, but I was in Exeter seeing some friends. She lives 30 minutes from Exeter. Now I know that my radius, you have, a, you have to set one of these radiuses where you know, do you want to meet people five miles away or 500 miles away or something like that, 100 miles away? Mine would never be too big because what's the point in sort of me matching with someone down in sort of Cornwall, for example? You know, it's just pointless. So my radius was really low. So Alice must have been really nearby at some point during my time in Exeter. Say I would have gone for, you know, a week, a week, for example, she must have gone to Exeter to do a bit of shopping at some point. I've then fallen into her radius. We both ended up matching each other. And that happened. Um, so that happened during 2014. And we started speaking and we didn't end up meeting until the following year. So that's quite a long time for someone on Tinder to, you know, match someone and not actually meet them. And I remember telling friends and I remember telling myself I remember saying if I ever get the chance to meet Alice I can tell that I would only ever need one time to meet her it would just work and I could tell that purely from the cold reading just from the way we're messaging just from looking at her photos and you sometimes only upload three or four photos but just by looking at those three or four photos out of you know you sort of sometimes match tens of people, sometimes people match hundreds of people. Um, out of all the people, I said, if I ever get the chance to meet Alice, one time is the only time I'll need and it, I'll make it work. And it's just funny because we started speaking in 2014. We didn't even end up meeting for nine months. So we're speaking for nine months before we ended up meeting. And I ended up coming down to Exeter. We ended up going out for dinner. And the long and the short of it is we are we've been together for nearly seven years now whoa so wow okay and, and that's my that's one of my proudest things outside of 
um, you know, the business stuff is 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 that I, I was sort of stayed positive, you know, because nine months is a long time before you meet someone. And I just feel sort of quite proud that um, and, and Alice was down at university in Devon. So I needed to have if I had a nine to five in London, there's no way I could have gone down to Devon for, you know, a Friday night. It sort of if I finish work at 5 p.m. on a Friday, uh, Patricia, if I finish work at 5 p.m. on a Friday, I'd be down in Devon at, you know, 10 p.m. I'd have to come back on a Sunday afternoon. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it made things yep. quite difficult. So having the social media stuff quite flexible meant I can go down there sort of thing. And that's why that it really suited. Do you see what I mean? It really sort of that part of my life that, you know, that business really helped with. And I guess I'm just proud of the fact that I was able to sort of construct a business that really fitted into my life when I needed it to and help with that. Wow. That is what, do you know, I'm, first of all, congratulations, because it takes people so long to actually find their partners. And, you know, you, you being, um, I think you said 20 in 2013, means that you're in 1993-ish, roundabouts then. Um, so you're going to be about like 28 now. So, you know, amazing and well done. Then all this systemization and, you know, knowing that you're going to be outsourcing, is that how you then built up your Airbnb business? You know, tell us about Airbnb, what you do, service accommodation. Oh, I call it Airbnb. It's not Airbnb, is it? It's service accommodation. How, you know, what you do with it and how you can help people. Because people Absolutely. in the room, Spencer is being really modest. And if you are into essays, he might be the one person or one of the people that you want to talk to. So tell us about that, because you are the star of this room today, right now. So tell people how you can help them. And I've, I've pinned your Instagram link. So people, if you want to contact Spencer, you can message him on Clubhouse or go to his Instagram and you can message him on there as well. So yeah, Spencer, tell us. So the Airbnb business started in 2016. I moved into Chelsea. And I moved into a one-bedroom flat. I still was doing social media at the time. I was really enjoying traveling, seeing friends, going away, playing golf. <clears throat> and I said to the landlord really casually, <laughs> um, gosh, where that ended up. And I said to him, if I go away traveling, can I put the property on Airbnb? And just help with some of the rent, you know, here and then. He said, yes, that's fine. <laughs> one of those sort of as long as the rent gets paid, yeah, that's fine. And great. So I went and went to Ikea and I just started looking around, looking at photos online, thinking, how am I going to do this? And I was really good at constructing social media posts and, you know, spend a lot of time doing that sort of thing. So I just had a really good eye for design. And went to, when I got the furniture, brought it back and built it myself, found a photographer, who is still my photographer today and never used a different photographer since. And I got, the, I got the property photographed, listed, and then within about 10 days or so, it had like the whole month booked. And that's when I really quickly realized that actually these numbers, wow, you know, that, that's, a, you know, it's 1800 pounds a month is the rent, 1,800 pounds in bookings over 10 days. So if I can hit 180 pounds per night on average, 
Then I need 10 nights to pay for the rent. I need four nights to pay for everything else. And I just looked at this as this needs, you need to be able to hit at 50% occupancy, cover your whole month. And I was really scared. I moved out of the flat. I put the flat on and this all happened really, really quickly. That's the thing I would say is I got momentum and I was really, really hungry and quick to get things moving. I must have moved into the flat in November 2016. And by sort of the start, of maybe later on in November, I've moved out of the flat. That flat is now on Airbnb. By December, we're on the phone to the agents. Elliot, I've had a chat with. We've said we're going to team up and we're going to try and get a few more properties. Elliot is also really good at speaking to estate agents. Elliot's background was also a state agency. So that really helped. So... Elliot got to work on speaking to estate agents. We used to like taking on properties at anywhere between £450 a week and £750 a week. And Elliot would go and meet estate agents. And actually, one of the ways he, he used to, he used to um, find properties is by going and viewing really expensive properties because if you're an estate agent and someone phones up about a £300 a week flat that everyone phones up about, that's a lot of time on that sort of trying to do a let. But if someone phones up to say, I, I like the look of this, you know, I want to, I want to view the £1,000 a week property or the £1,500 a week property, that estate agent's going to put you first. And once they've qualified you, they're going to put you first and they're going to see you whenever you want, because that's a far bigger let than a £300 a week property. So, so just, to do... to, just to put this into context, um, Spencer, the £450 a week, that is 1900 and something a month. And the £700 a week is just over £3,000 a month. Because in case there are people in the room like me that work per calendar month and not per week I thought let me just let me just share that so that people have a context as to what you're talking about so yeah great stuff no problem at all absolutely so I, I just sort of go on my calculator and times the number of the per week by four three 4.33 on average but I sometimes used to work on those per week numbers because if I'm looking at the number per week I then need to look at the number per night and it just sort of, I would work it sort of uh, sometimes like that. And <clears throat> so Elliot was looking at properties for around £1,500 a week, going and meeting the estate agency. The estate agent would turn up and sort of see Elliot and, you know, be a bit like, wow. You know, it used to be sort of, What's, what, what does this guy do? Um, to sort of look be looking at £1,500 a week properties that's got to be about £7,000 a month. And Elliot would explain and say, you know, this is what we do. Uh, we look after the property. It's serviced accommodation. We want corporate staying, professional staying. We want long-term stays. And we can pay money up front. And we can, you know, do this, this and that. And, and eventually, just through loads and loads of viewings, loads and loads of phone calls, Elliot slowly managed to meet a couple of agents who they just got it. And that's what you're sort of looking for is the agent that just gets it and they understand how it works and they understand that, you know, you mean business and you are going to not just talk the talk, but you are going to walk the walk. And what I mean by that is 
when it comes to paying the money, you know, you pay it as soon as possible. There's no delays. You view it. You say, yes, I want it very quickly. The estate agent's thinking that was a quick let. You know, that sort of was a phone call. Um, it, it can be that quick as a phone call. So, you know, a phone call to say we've got another property in this building. I've spoken to the landlord. He said he's absolutely fine. Uh, he's good as gold. He understands service accommodation. You know, let me know. And it would be very quickly. When can I see it? The agent would say, do you want to meet me there in 20 minutes in Belgravia or Victoria or somewhere like that? Sure. See it. Yeah, we'll take it. Pay the money up front. Off we go. You know, another one. And we learned a lot of lessons in that process, in that time. The second property we ever took was a Chelsea footballer's property in in uh, in, in Chelsea, in Pimlico. Um, and we got the keys on a Monday, furnished it. And by Friday, we had someone staying and they've sort of rang all the bells and all the buzzers at about three in the morning and woken up everyone. And basically on Saturday, the freeholders found out. And on Sunday, we've surrendered the tenancy. And that was our second ever property. So I've gone from one to two and then back from two to one. And it was really, really quite hard to take actually at the time. This would have been in December. So the following month in December, this happened. And it was just really, really one of those horrible moments where you really feel like you've gone that next step and then you've taken that big step back and you've got to just you know pull yourself together find that strength shrug it off chalk it down to experience and just say I'm not going to let that happen again and I'm going to move on you know and work harder to make this happen and through the following year 2017 we took on more properties um we started managing properties for, for, for landlords. And one of the ways in which I started uh, building that side of the business was this inherent knowledge and feeling that if I know other people in London who are doing Airbnb and serviced accommodation, there is a lot of value in knowing people in your area. So if you're operating in any area, whether that be Brighton or Birmingham or Scotland, it doesn't matter where it is. The most important thing I look at is if there's loads of people nearby also doing this, I want to know them because if I know them, then when I have a problem at a property and this does happen, you know, you might have someone, you might have no hot water. So it really helps if you've got no hot water and your guest says, you've got no, you know, I've got no hot water, the boiler's just broken or whatever it might be. It really helps to know that you know the guy down the road who also has a couple of properties and you can quickly send him a message and say, I've got a relocation. Can you help with it? Conversely, he might actually message you and say, I've got a relocation. And before you know it, if you can build up a bit of a database um, or as I call them, you know, WhatsApp groups. So I build out WhatsApp groups of people in central London who have properties. And through through doing that, and having these WhatsApp groups of people with properties, all of a sudden, there starts to be opportunities. And it goes back to the social media business because through having this WhatsApp group, I'm showing value to people because people are connecting with people. People are connecting with people and they turn around and go, wow, you know, Spencer, thank you so much for inviting me into this WhatsApp group. I, you know, I, I've managed to, I've managed, uh, Nick has managed to 
take one of my relocations and you know he's really saved my bacon and I'm sort of like I haven't really done anything all I've really done is just sort of message someone um on on Airbnb for example and say would you like to join my WhatsApp group or put a post out on Facebook and people have just said yes here's my number so I all, I, all I've actually done is just done the first part found the people put them into a WhatsApp group before you know it I've got loads of people in the WhatsApp group People are getting the value from the WhatsApp group and then they think, how can I help Spencer? And that's how I started to network with some of the people who have these properties. And one of them just so happened to own a number of buildings in Pimlico. And he said to me, would you like to manage those properties for me on Airbnb? And that was one of those moments again where I realized that's exactly how some of these opportunities work is because you have to do the first part, which is, you know, sometimes loads of messages on LinkedIn, loads of messages on Facebook, loads of messages on Airbnb. And then that gets you to the next point, which is people in a WhatsApp group. Starts off, you know, five, then 10, then 15, and it goes up and up and up. And then before you know it, the next part is messaging those people, connecting with those people, networking with those people. And at that point, that's when opportunities start to open. And that's sort of the way I see networking and that's how we built up some of the management is very very organic in that sense it wasn't very forceful it wasn't very much letters through a letterbox all it was was basically having a whatsapp group with 30 odd people 40 people for example and just through touching base with those people slowly doors opened in different directions one of them being we've got loads of properties in this building do you want to manage them? So that's how that side of the business uh, built up. The management side, the estate agency side, that's how we built up more properties. And in the end, we only had two or three estate agents provide us with, uh, in the end, about 30, 35 properties on service accommodation. And that business grew to a really good level. And I used to um, used to really sort of look at systemizing the business how do we get this business really efficient how do we mitigate the problems i think in life and in business it's really important to always say to yourself and this is how i look at it it's really important to say it's all good when things go right but really the most important thing i need to focus on understanding is what do we do when things go wrong and what what can go wrong and what are we going to do about it and once you start putting processes and systems i believe into place to mitigate the things that go wrong that's when things start going right that's that's my philosophy behind sometimes approaching some of these tasks is fixing the things that can go wrong things start going right i don't know if that that slightly helps at all put into context oh you know, Spencer, that is exactly how if if you study if you study um, law in the UK as a solicitor, that is how we are taught, which is, you know, where you are now is fine. But look ahead, see what can go wrong. And if that can go wrong, then you want to address that in the documents that you're doing or the advice that you're giving to your client. And then everyone is like fully informed. And that is the best way to actually kind of like, you know, grow anything or do anything going forward. So I, I completely relate to that. Um, and 
it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really interesting to hear you say that. Now, in terms of the linen service that you offer, can you just tell us how that works and what you do, what's in it, how much, if you're able to, you know, tell us how much you charge, that sort of thing, because that will be really, really useful. Absolutely. So in 2018, I had five housekeepers full time. In the summer of 2018, they were all standing around one day doing nothing. And I literally looked at Elliot and went, we've got to think of something to get these housekeepers busy. Why were the housekeepers standing around? The reason they were standing around was because people were staying for, say, three weeks, a month, really long term stays. We had large loads of long stays. And in the summer, people sometimes were staying for all of summer in some of these beautiful properties, uh, which is fantastic to have. And and I really like the long stays. They're just so much easier to manage. We had people stay for six months before. We had loads of contractors coming and they would come on projects and they would stay for months and months and months. And I you know, used to have um, all these different people staying for long periods of time. <clears throat> and it made the business run really easy. The problem is that I had five full-time housekeepers and they were doing not a lot during this period. And that's when I then said to Elliot, let's start this cleaning business. Okay, what do we actually want to achieve? And what we really wanted to achieve was if I have five housekeepers on the left-hand side costing me £2,000 per week, for example, for five staff full-time or, you know, something like that, then on the other side of it, I just sort of casually say, wouldn't it be great if we were earning £2,000 per week from housekeeping? That would completely offset my housekeeping cost. And it is quite an expensive cost. So in, in terms of if you look at your numbers when you're doing service accommodation, you know, that housekeeping cost of linen or cleaning it is a bit of a dent in the numbers. It can change your numbers completely. If your housekeeping cost is quite high, you're going to have to approach it with a slightly higher nightly rate. If my if my numbers can change on the housekeeping side, maybe I can offer properties a little bit, you know, for example, cost effective, we can then get more long term stays, it can sort of just work a bit both ways. So I said that I said, let's go and and try and get five housekeepers earning us or, or, or something like that. Let's try and get five housekeepers busy working away for us, earning us some, some revenue. And that's when I then had this thought of, OK, how are we going to do that? Oh, of course, I've just got to repeat the process from before, which is let's get to know everyone who's got Airbnbs around London. So it started off with, OK, where are Airbnbs, for example? might have been Belgravia, Victoria, Marlebone, Paddington. Okay, so we'll start with those those areas and we're going to start messaging people and we're going to basically take their information, whether it's on booking.com, we're going to look it up on Google, we're going to search their number, we're going to find their number, we're going to message them on LinkedIn, we're going to do, you know, all sorts of ways of finding these people and, and actually that's where the virtual assistant side came in. So, I then said to the, uh, I, had a, I had a virtual assistant at the time and I said to him, you know, go away and let's go map out these areas. Because if we map out these areas, 
then I get to know who has the Airbnbs in this area. And it's actually really interesting having the data because if you look and you see someone's got an Airbnb in Marlebone and then they've got one in Greenwich, if we start if we start mapping it out, all of a sudden we start to see who has the most in London. And that really, really was quite a peculiar thought to me at the time was, you know, I've worked really hard to try and just get to this level. I wonder if there's people who have got hundreds and hundreds. I don't know who they are. So I really like the idea of building out the data. There's very few people out there who really understand that data. And I really wanted to be one of those people that, you know, was messaging loads of people, sending out loads of emails, connecting on LinkedIn. If, 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 if you know, if you're not doing it, I want to be the one doing it. I want to be the one who pops up in these people's inboxes. And if I can send a thousand messages or get the virtual assistants to send a thousand messages, we're going to get, you know, a certain number of replies. And then we're going to get a certain number of people say, sure, you know, I'd love some cleaning. Or you might get someone say, sure, add me to the WhatsApp group. So I used to add people into the WhatsApp group. And that was how I started to say to people, let's connect. Tell me about, you know, let's just, you know, you've got properties in Marlebone or Paddington. They would turn around to me in the WhatsApp group and sort of, you know, I'd speak to them and they would say, how do you know that? And that's the thing is it's, I know where everyone's got Airbnbs now in London. And over about a year, we mapped out a lot of London in terms of who has properties where, what's their address, what's their name, the social media profiles. Let's go and find them. Let's go and message them. And let's try and see if we can do it. And one of the companies on there was a company called Sonda. And Sonda had basically raised a lot of money from San Francisco. I don't know if there's, is there a way of putting a link in the top here, Patricia? Um, yeah, definitely. So what I need from you is just tell me the website address. I'll go to it, copy the link, and then I'll paste it in a minute. Sure. So this was the article which I'm going to send to you just now. I've just forwarded it to you on WhatsApp. <clears throat> and that was the article I saw, which um, might be interesting to post. That was the article I saw around the time where we started seeing them pop up with a few apartments in London. And the article was just around that sort of time where we'd sort of said we're going to try and get you know a few cleaners and we're going to try and set up this cleaning operation and that article there was what led me to sending them a message straight away to say we'd love to have a chat with you about cleaning about linen toiletries consumables things things like that which we you know we we were we weren't really sort of too proficient in yet we were very good at cleaning one of my proudest moments in the cleaning business through growing it was actually the way i trained up the staff and made sure everyone who was in that team really felt like a family member to me and still to this day do and i remember our housekeeping manager uh, Paula still works with us uh, in managing the whole operation. And I remember she didn't speak a word of English when we when we first hired her. But it's one of those ones where at the time I say to myself, we're going to get her to be 
a superstar in this cleaning business and we got her English lessons. We get all the cleaners English lessons like that. Someone who couldn't speak a word of English comes here. I'm the first person to say to them, you know, we're going to give you a great job. You're going to work really hard. And if you're hungry enough, you know, you won't, you know, you'll see where it takes you. And I love that sort of challenge where there's someone who doesn't speak English. Let's see if we can get this to the next level. Because if we've got housekeepers that, you know, they speak perfect English and they're brilliant at their job and they work really hard, that's a very different level of service to someone in most housekeeping firms. And I'm one of my proudest moments in the cleaning business was actually when Paola walked in and we had a full on conversation in English. And it's just something like that, just really, wow, you know, it makes you turn around and just go, you've really sort of helped change someone's life. Now they can speak English. It's such a small thing that it really did hit home for me. And that was one of my proudest moments was just seeing her, you know, talking, laughing, you know, just fully sort of different person completely. And that's what the clients really liked was that they can communicate with Paola, the head of housekeeping. So we messaged Sonda and we said to them, we'd love to talk to you about cleaning, about linen, all sorts of things. And one thing that we are really good at is cleaning, communication, things like that. And so I went in and sat down with these guys from San Francisco and they're talking to me all about, you know, how we've raised hundreds of millions and we're going to get hundreds of properties and we're going to do this. And, you know, we're going to, they're just talking all about how they've got 30 Slack groups and there's a main one called the nucleus. And, you know, just, I'm just there like, gosh, like this is, you know, um, it's like another world of sitting in with these sort of San Fran guys. But the conversation stirred towards, we need someone who's going to do all of our cleaning, all of our linen, all of our toiletries, consumables. And we want that person to grow with us. And I said to them, just like sort of Richard Branson probably would say, absolutely, that's us. We can do it. You know, no problem at all. Really, really didn't know what I was getting myself into. And we got pegged up with another firm and that other firm used to do cleaning as well and linen. And basically we grew as Sonda grew. They grew to hundreds and hundreds of properties across London. And it was a really tough time growing that business. It wasn't meant to be as big as the business got to. I didn't want it to be um, as big as it as, as big as it got to. My goal was actually just to reduce my cleaning costs, and we ended up getting up to 55 housekeepers in 2019. So wanted five, ended up with 55, and and the growing pains when growing that business really taught me a lot about. It was so important to have the knowledge from the past when it came to growing this business. So many different elements, whether it's recruitment for drivers, recruitment for housekeeping, helping Paola with recruitment, helping Paola with systems and processes and staying positive because of all the hard times in service accommodation and stuff like that. Once we were once we were in quite deep with Sonda, there's no way out. There's no turning around to them and going, we can't do it. What actually happened was we got pegged up with another firm because they don't want one firm doing everything because that firm 
could turn around and you know just collapse and and then they're they're in trouble and i can and i could tell you a couple of stories as well about how we've worked with other firms and one of the clients off the back of sonder who have done the same thing uh so we were we we sort of positioned ourselves as a bit of a troubleshooter so there's a firm called nest angel uh, not nest angel it's it's um i can't remember it's oh it might be nest angel actually i need to just check but sure basically this firm asked us to do their housekeeping on all of their properties we said how much we charge we charge 15 pounds per hour for cleaning what you get for that is you get the housekeeper turn up clean for x amount of time you get paula in the support and you're going to get the job done properly and they turned around to us and said you know we can't we can't pay that uh we've got another firm who who want to charge a lot less and i never said you know we're going to come down on price because we're not going to come down on quality sometimes they turn around and say you can come down on quality but we'll never do that and i got an email at three in the morning and uh, you know i said to them politely no thank you and i got an email at three in the morning to say that the firm they've taken on has emailed them just then to say guys we can't do it and what actually happened when i woke up at say seven in the morning was they've taken on this firm that said we'll do all of your cleaning hundreds of properties we'll do all of it for 10 pounds an hour and they've taken on this firm <clears throat> lo and behold this firm god knows what they're paying their staff god knows what the quality was like but this firm has basically one night just emailed them and said we just can't do this anymore they must have just been losing loads of you know revenue and money and all sorts so they come to me at sort of three in the morning panicking saying can you do it i've woken up at seven in the morning and said well yes we can but actually the rate has changed for last minute cleaning how many cleans do you have and they've turned around and said we've got 26 flats dotted around london that need cleaning today and it's in those sort of moments where you think oh my god my day was not meant to be doing this and it's just all of a sudden okay so if we're going to do this i'm not doing it as a one-off it's we're talking about uh you know taking on the business taking on the contract we're not talking about and if and if you want to start talking about uh you know 10 pounds an hour then we can forget about it if you're serious about us doing this properly at this rate our rate we'll fix your problem today and we'll do it and the ceo sort of phoned me and said 100 you know we need you to come and do this so we went in we've done it and that's how we won more clients that's how we sit down with them and say you know look you know we, we sort of solved your big problem um and so that's how we started winning business but the growing pains going back to that just quickly the growing pains are tremendous and the reason they're tremendous is because when you're growing with a company like sonder so just a just a reference as well when i'm talking about 10 pounds an hour that's a different company completely that's a company that we were just talking to about other things sonder were never like that that's a different this is this is back to sonder now um sonder we were growing with we grew to say for example 250 properties and we grew with this other firm when you're growing to 250 properties all around london it's really really hard because so many places need deliveries at a certain time in a certain window that window 
has to be coordinated with the housekeepers. Housekeepers got to be there. We're delivering. There weren't flats dotted around. Thankfully, it would have been 10 buildings, 20 buildings, something like that, you know, so they only took on buildings with large numbers. It's just the fact that on any given day, there could be loads or not a lot. And it's really, really hard to manage it. And the other part of it <clears throat> is that when you're hiring a driver, so a really good driver is a thousand pounds a week. That's, um, you know, 4,000 plus pounds per month for a really good driver. It's a lot of money because the driver's doing six days a week, 10 hour days. It's actually a really fair amount of money. But when you're paying a thousand pounds a week for a driver, you need to make sure that driver is busy and at capacity. And some of the growing pains were just, they were, you know, really horrible because what you're essentially doing is you're making sure driver number one is really, really busy. Okay, he's really busy. This is his capacity. And we know where capacity would sit because we know what he can produce in the van, what he can put in the van, how long it takes for him to deliver. Okay, so he can deliver 70, for example, um, flats, for example. But we've got 112 to do. So we know that I've got to get in the van or Elliot's got to get in the van and we've got to go and fix this, you know, and that's just today. And whilst you're doing that, you have to start the recruitment process because you have to start the, okay, what happens when we get to 140? Get to 140 per day, we know we need two drivers. And then if there's more, again, I'm filling in the gaps. And I'll never forget, we had, a, we had the same software as DPD and you put in all the addresses and then you put in the time you need to deliver to that address. And then once the driver signs in to this software, if he's going to be on time, it comes up green lights next to each uh, delivery. I don't know if you're following on that at all. Yeah. Yeah, green lights. And I remember one of our drivers waking up in the morning. He'd been up, he'd been, he'd been out the whole night before drinking. And I remember at five in the morning, I just couldn't sleep properly. I had this bad feeling. We've got a really busy day. I get up at five and I look at the software and every single delivery is red. We are late for every single delivery today. And it's a huge amount. He's not answering. He's not answered the phone. I had to make the call. You have to make these sort of decisions there and then that if I don't get up in the next minute, and get in a van, find a zip van, and drive to the storage unit and make this happen, the whole day is gonna become a huge disaster. And we're being pegged up against another firm for cleaning, for linen, for Sonder. And this other firm was doing it as well. And I always had said to Elliot, if we can just show Sonder that we can do this, you know, we are indispensable, the other firm eventually, I believe, won't be able to survive the level of quality we are standing. You know, if we can be really high on quality, I would be really surprised if anyone else can, can match up to that. And in that moment, I get out of bed and off I go to go and deliver a huge amount of bed linen that I'm not even, you know, I'm not particularly huge and I'm not very big. And this is a sort of tough job. 
Um, so I've got to do that. Meanwhile, I've got to find another driver. Meanwhile, we've got check-ins happening, all sorts of things at the service departments. And it's just sometimes in those moments you have to you have to dig so deep because it, it, it can last days and days and days and sometimes weeks, sometimes even months where you really feel like I can't believe this is actually what my life has become. I'm a, I'm a delivery driver, you know, and I never, ever, ever wanted this to happen. I just wanted a few housekeepers to be busy. And now I've become a delivery driver. We then get a phone call during this period <clears throat> from Sonda and they say to us, the other firm isn't as good as you guys and the quality isn't as good as you guys. Do you want to double in size overnight? And at this point, I'm still doing the, the deliveries. And Elliot, and we've got and, and we've got one other driver doing deliveries. Got me doing deliveries, back to back. Elliot's doing some as well. And um, you know, I need a day off. Elliot, you know, this and that. There's no Christmas. Was like, who's doing what? New Year's, who's doing deliveries on the first of January? It just was relentless. And we turned around to them and said, Sonda, of course we're doubling in size overnight. <laughs> and just like that, we went from 250 properties up to about 500. We've never even seen these buildings before. Oh, but guess what? Tomorrow we've got to deliver to loads of buildings now. Or, you know, over a period of, it might not have been tomorrow. It might have been, you know, you start next week or something or something like that. And they just executed the break clause very quickly. They had very quick exit clauses if the quality wasn't good. Next thing from next Monday, we're delivering to loads of buildings. Okay, so after we do deliveries today, after we do the check-ins at the service departments, we're going to go drive around London and look at these new buildings that this other firm had. And I've got to try and find uh, some drivers. You know, I've got to, got to push the recruitment so hard. I ended up taking two drivers in an interview out with me. And I said to these two drivers, meet me in Covent Garden at this building. And as they're coming up the road in a zip van I've hired, they've crashed it into a bollard, like a huge thing, like a huge big crash. And this driver has just absolutely <laughs> smashed this van into this bollard. And I'm just standing there like, oh my God, like, you know, this was meant to be the guy who like, you know, I was hoping this could be my new delivery driver. And he's ripped and he's absolutely binned the zip van. And I just like, you have your hand on your face, just like, oh, you know, this is going to be dig deep, you know, I took the keys off of him. I just turned around to him there and then I just said, honestly, I said, just go home. You know, you're not doing deliveries today, are you? <laughs> You've been the zip van. Um, and off he went. And, and that was that interview done. And, he's, and I'm left with a zip van that's like got a huge bollard in it. And it just, it really is relentless. And you have to be so, you know, you have to really be ready for the, anything to happen like that. Um, we ended up actually putting out more job ads making loads of phone calls and actually the other company that was doing Sonder stuff they had to make staff redundant and one of those staff members applied for the job with me and he comes to meet me and he says and our company at the time is exclusive London departments and that's short for ELA and he comes and meets us and he goes I know you he goes you guys you're Ella and I'm like what do you mean Ella and he says Ella, we all know you, Ella, you know, and I'm just like, 
Ella? Who's Ella? You know, this sort of, and apparently everyone calls us Ella, um, like the girl's name. And he says, you know, I've been doing all the deliveries to all of these buildings that you've just taken on. And I just got made redundant. And I, and I just sort of had this big sigh of relief going, ah, oh, thank God for that. Because now, now you can go straight in. And he started working with us and, you know, he knew all the buildings that we just taken on. And it's just lucky moments like that, that really help, you know, those growing pains. So that's wow. some of the story. That's one of the, that's a few of the stories, if that helps. Oh, thank you, Spencer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I thought I knew what you did, but I didn't know the extent of what you're actually doing. But in terms of like, you know, our, our ordinary investor, our ordinary airbnb our ordinary essayer, how can you help them where maybe they've only got one property or they've got two or they've got three maybe, you know, they're not the Sunders of this world. I've still got the Sunder link up um, and I'll put back your, um, your, um, gosh, what's it called? Your Instagram link. So people, if you want to contact Spencer, do message him on um, Clubhouse or you can message him via Instagram. But yeah, how can you help our, you know, our smaller person? Of course. So I really, li I really like helping anyone. And, you know, it's just in my nature to sort of help. I'm really good at talking to people about some of their problems in service accommodation, whether it's a problem about, can you have a look at my listing? I think uh, Louise in the other group, she sent me her listing. I said to her, you've got to change this, you've got to change that. I just have a really good eye for sort of how something should look, sort of a bit like a, sort of like a bit of a hotelier in the sense of, you know, you sort of put your finger across the line of the skirting and you sort of looking at something. And I'm just sort of quite good at sort of looking at something. I've done it so many times in so many apartments, so many listings that I can just look at a listing and straight away say, that's wrong. You want to put that there. That's what the title should be. That's what your settings should be like. Let's have a look at, you know, your settings, just making sure everything ties in well. I can always do that for people. So anyone can send me their listing. I'll take a look at it and I'll give you my fair critique on it. And I'll say, you know, whether you think, you know, even even how your photos are arranged, which photos first, what's your, you know, all those little things are really important for when someone's looking at your listing. So I can help someone uh, with that. If anyone obviously needed anything in London, cleaning related, linen related, um, we can help. I can help anyone with that. And, you know, we, we sort of pride ourselves on being that emergency sort of person. I've had it so many times, people just phoning me up last minute, I need cleaning today. My housekeepers let us down, you know, that sort of thing. I have that, I have that sort of conversation quite often with people um, well, it's not often like every day, you know, but it's sort of, I wouldn't be surprised if at least once a month, someone's messaging me to say, I need a cleaner last minute, you know, and we sort of bail people out. So I always like to help people like that and bail people out. And I can always help people with one thing I really like helping people with is chargebacks. Chargebacks in this industry is just it's huge chargebacks people who don't understand chargebacks and serviced accommodation properly 
are going to get bitten. And I got bitten myself. And that's why I decided to really understand it. And a chargeback basically is a process in which a customer can contact the bank and there can be up to a hundred different reason codes as to why they want to do a chargeback. And what a chargeback is, is a customer saying, haven't received the product or service as described. And there could be loads of different reasons. Could be anything at all. There's so many different reasons and there's a link. Uh, in fact, I'm going to, um, Patricia, if you want to put this link up actually on onto, um, if you'd like to put this link up for everyone, this might be a really good link for people to have a look at. If you'd like, I can just send it to you. I'd, I'd gone to kind of like start typing it into my browser and then you didn't say anything so I had to find my way back to, to here. Okay. I've just, I've just WhatsApp to you it. Oh, you WhatsApp, okay. So this link is just something that anyone in service accommodation who really wants to understand the nitty gritty behind payment processes, chargebacks and understanding some of these things, I really recommend looking at this link and just really getting your head around it. The in practice and the reality of how this works is as follows. Someone will come and book your property on booking.com, for example, or another platform. Won't be Airbnb because they handle the payment. You will then have settings set up where you are to take that payment from that person. They will put their car details in and you will be given that information. And you need to be compliant with dealing with those car details. Some people aren't even compliant with that sort of thing. You need to be compliant to handle that personal data. And you will also need a payment processor to process that payment, taking that money off of someone's card when they've booked your property. And there's so many reasons as to how this can go wrong. And I could go in, you know, the, the link you're gonna put up will sort of really help with that. But in practice, what happens on, the, on a fraudulent side of things is that someone will come someone will stay, you will have taken the money of their card, let's just say, for example, 500 pounds for their stay, for their week or weekend. They will then go home, they will phone the bank, they will say to the bank, I didn't approve that payment, or I didn't, didn't get the, uh, the apartment, you know, I didn't get what I had paid for. The bank will turn around, there's a hundred different reasons they could phone the bank. The bank always protects the customer. That's one thing you have to just remember is in this world we live in, the bank is out there to protect the customer. So as a host and as a uh, merchant, you have to protect yourself to the maximum to make sure that when someone comes and I've had it so many times, I could, I could it looked like a book, the amount of paperwork to people, I could show you, you know, a book's worth of paperwork, people are phoning up the bank and they know, the clever people, they know that they can get away with it. And the reason they can get away with it is because if you don't properly get authorization from someone and consent to take that payment, then the bank will turn around to you 
And it's a really simple conversation. It's please provide us the evidence that Patricia has consented and authorized that payment. And if you cannot prove that in detail, and you should have a system in place to prove that, then you're in trouble. Because what will happen is really simply, you leave a turnaround to go, I, like I used to at the start, it was, I haven't actually got uh, proof, I didn't get consent, and then really simply, the money straight back to the customer, and that's the last time you'll ever hear of it. And there's no comebacks to that at all. So the only safe way of ever taking money from someone is two ways, actually it's three ways. The first one is chip and pin. So the bank will turn around to you and say, can you prove that they consented? You can turn around to them and go, this customer paid via chip and pin. It's, you know, the bank will turn around to the customer and say, we've got it here that you've paid via chip and pin. You shouldn't have given your pin out to someone else. And basically that's sort of where the, 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 the law of that side sits is you shouldn't give your pin out to someone else. If you've actually put your pin in, that's the end of it. Uh, that there's your consent. The second way is a bank transfer, so a BACS. Most people, when they come and stay at a hotel or holiday, they don't really pay by BACS. It's not really too common. So you'll need to put a process in for how do you actually get a BACS transfer from your customer. You know, you need to do it in a very non-intrusive uh, way, trying to say to someone, you know, before you come and stay, send the money to our bank account. So. People don't tend to like that when they come and stay. The reason people don't like that is because people like to do credit card or, you know, I want to pay on my card or me and my friends, we want to split the money. That happens, you know, a lot. So you have to be just um, mindful of that. A back transfer is very safe. If I just transfer loads of money to your bank, Patricia, uh, it's quite hard for me to get that money back. The third way is cash. Cash obviously used to be king and someone paying cash and I mean, there's a very high chance that the cash is going to be fine when someone pulls out a bit of money from their wallet or from a cash point. Um, that's the other way. All three of those ways, people don't tend to actually, you know, it's very unlikely if you're going to be a, a remote investor, it's very unlikely you're going to go all the way up to somewhere where you're where you have an essay and you're going to produce a card machine, put your card in at check in. I used to have to do that. And that's how I stopped chargebacks. And it wasn't very nice, but it was the only way. So I used to wait sometimes until three in the morning for a guest to come from China, just so I can literally put their card in the machine. She can put her pin in and then it's great. The payment's done. Eventually I got to learn a bit more about the chargebacks and then built a form and this form I've got mitigates chargebacks. And it's a form that I send to the guest. The form is deleted after their checkout. So, you know, it's sort of, we're not holding on to any of this data. And what I'm looking to understand from this form is information about the person who's staying and make sure that the person who is staying is the one who is paying and that they consent to that. And usually how that's done is, you know, Patricia, you'll have your ID. That will say Patricia on it. You have a bank card that should say Patricia on it. 
or you know Mrs. Um, Ogden, you know your uh, sorry, I can't say Ogden, Ogden, Ogden Fabo, isn't it? Um, oh my God! Well done. Sorry, and um, you know the point is is that what you want to see when you're checking someone into your property and you're giving them the keys is you want to make sure that the person who booked is the person who stays, the person who stays is the person who pays, and the person who pays authorizes that payment and consents to it. So you want to see the name on the card and you want to see the last four digits. You want that to match what's been put into the, uh, what's been put into your channel manager or your booking.com account, for example. You'll only see those, you know, you can see those details. So once you see that, okay, brilliant, that's the first step. The next step is just making sure you, you know, your ID matches that. Because what can happen is I go and book and pay for Patricia to go and stay at this lovely Airbnb. But ultimately, if if you literally turn up, get some get keys to this property, stay and check out, well, I can turn to the bank and say, I didn't, you know, I didn't authorize this payment um, at all. I didn't stay at any property. So you have to be really careful, just making sure that the person who stays is the person who pays. If that's not the case, and this does happen uh, a fair amount in the industry, and that um, and that is such that uh, Shania, you know, might book a lovely apartment for Lisa and in the audience. And, you know, Lisa, I'm gonna treat you to a weekend away. I'm, I'm gonna pay for it, but you're gonna go and do it. There are forms that need to be filled out it's called a third party authorization. And it's basically that someone is staying, but someone else is paying. And the reason I learned about some of these things is because I basically phoned up the Ritz. And I basically just said to them, okay, I'm not going to stay. I'm going to pay for someone else. Is that okay? And they turn around and say, okay, that's absolutely fine. But here's how we, here's the information we're going to do. And this is what we need. And then the Ritz will say, once you've booked, you're going to get an email and that email will have everything. And it's probably quite wise if you're, uh, one thing I would recommend to anyone is if you're going down the route of taking payments and processing payments yourself, phone up the Ritz, book the Ritz, do it, you know, a refundable or something or book the Marriott or whatever it is, you book all of them. If it's refundable, um, you know, you've got a cancellation policy, you can cancel it, book them, phone them up, find out their chargeback policy, because these firms, Hilton, Marriott, they've nailed it. They don't have these problems. They've got all the systems in place. So anyone who's looking to get into service accommodation, for example, it's just like being a very small hotel. You just have to look at how these big hotels doing it. <clears throat> I would recommend, you know, going there, staying there, finding out some of their processes. How do they do it? You know, and that's some of the things that I really recommend to helping anyone in their journey is going to a great Airbnb, staying there, going to a crap Airbnb, terrible Airbnb staying there and seeing the difference and then phoning up places like the Ritz and all these other places trying to learn some of their processes from it you know really really helps and that's how I got my third party authorization forms and really once you have those things in place you're stopping the things going wrong that's when you know going back to things start going right I hope that helps wow that 
is amazing, Spencer. And anyone who's in service accommodation actually needs to hear you say what you said. You know, thank you for sharing so generously about what you do and how you do it because that is just absolutely amazing. I've taken so many things away. And this is another of the podcasts that I'm going to be listening back back on. I normally don't don't listen to any podcast that I'm in, but this one I need to because you've shared so many things which are not just about property and not just about service accommodation, not just about Airbnb, but about business in general. And the thing is, you also said something earlier, which I thought was just absolutely key. Some of the things that make business work can be quite simple. And it's just a question of knowing your business, identifying the weak links and plugging them. Now, I'm going to be listening back at this because I think there's so much that you've shared that people can learn from, that I can learn from. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. So if people want to listen back um, on what Spencer has been sharing, um, please do um, uh, click on the link above, which is the prop- uh, the Maximising uh, Property Values podcast link. And you can then bookmark that in your favourite listening app. And Spencer's Um, show will be published next week. So next week, Wednesday, exactly a week from today, his show is going to go live. But it will also be on Clubhouse. So I edit just a little bit um, when they go onto the podcast. So the bit where I'm setting up the room, I just take that out and that just is not in the podcast itself. But you can listen back on Clubhouse. So thank you, thank you so much, Spencer. Thank you for doing this with me. And thank you for, you know, to everyone in the room, thank you for spending your afternoon with us. And if you're not already following Spencer, please just click on his face and follow him. If you don't want to miss any of these guest series, tap on my face and, you know, click on the bell icon and then you will be notified every single time that these come on. But they're on Wednesdays at 12 noon every day, just once a week. And the guest who comes is the star of the show. And you will learn amazing things from all these guests. They've all been handpicked. Listen to what Spencer's been saying today. Amazing, amazing. Thank you very much. Patricia, and we need to we need to do we need to do your one at some point. <laughs> and next week I've got Louise Reynolds coming on. So if people want to invest you know, they want to invest long distance, whether it's, you know, you live in London, you want to invest, you know, up north or you live up north, you want to invest in London or down south, or you want to invest in the west or the east, wherever, or abroad, Louise is your person. So she's going to be here with me next week, Wednesday at noon. But on that note, I'm just going to say again, once more, thank you, Spence. Do you know, I've not given people a chance to come and ask you questions if they've got any questions. You've been so comprehensive, though, I don't suppose anyone does. But, no. Reach out to Spencer, you know, like I said, you know, message him on Clubhouse, go to Instagram, reach out to him. Amazing, Spencer. Thank you so much. And no problem. I, just one, just one, if I can just say one more thing. Yes, if, definitely. If please. that's okay. Yeah, I guess if there's one thing that, I think um, is is one takeaway as well is 
not to be afraid to be the person that sends out those emails, sends out those messages, phones up all the people, you know, connects with loads of people. It's, 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 it's such a, the not playing the numbers game has really helped me over the years with building my network and growing the businesses. And I just think, you know, that's one side of it, I think is a big takeaway if anyone can is, is don't be afraid to sort of, you know, whether it's go on loads of viewings or message loads of people on Airbnb or, you know, connect with loads of people on LinkedIn. It, it, it's only, it's all about consistency. That's what's it. That's what I believe, believe in. I believe it's about following a process and being consistent. And that's what gets you slowly. Well, you know, you'll start to slowly see results. Wow. And again, thank you for that. Because most of us are actually quite scared. You know, we kind of like think, oh, do you know, can I do it? Oh, I've sent out, you know, however many messages. Nobody's responded positively. Oh, it's a complete waste of time. So thank you for the, you know, for those closing remarks, because that will resonate with people who are doing it at the moment and who might be feeling a bit despondent. Don't give up. Do not give up. That is the message from Spencer. And no, Spencer, thank you so much. So, people, see you next week. If you honestly enjoy these, please do rate, please review the show, because that will just help me know if you're actually enjoying what is being done. And it will also help other people find it. So, if you found it useful, help other people find it as well. But thank you. Enjoy.